But how important is the book of life? Who wants their name written in the book of life? Yeah. You don't want to get you don't want to die and find out your name's not in the book of life. You know, you don't want to go through life not knowing if your name's in the book of life. You know, you can know your name's there, can't you? You'll know. Because you're following Christ with all your heart. You love him with all your heart. You don't get bored when people talk about Jesus. You actually get impassioned. You know, because Jesus becomes your all. And if Jesus is not your all, your name couldn't might not be in the book of life. If Jesus, if you don't care for Jesus, you don't if you don't love him, if you could take him or leave him, if you could if you'd rather sit at home and watch a, a, a crazy worldly movie than listen to someone talk about Jesus Christ and give him glory, then you've got to start to question things. Amen. You know, we've got to know we're there. Because it's, it's, it's useless to have called yourself a Christian your whole life and get before God and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And he'll just say, I never knew you. You never did the will of God. You never knew me. You never loved me. You never followed me. You didn't want anything to do with me. You sat in church and yawned. Found it boring when people talked about Jesus. But you know what? He is the most important thing in your life. There's nothing more important than Jesus Christ. Nothing. And it's not until you, you enter into that time when you're slipping into death that at that moment, Jesus will mean everything. And I've, how many times have I said this in the past? But the name, you want your name in the book of life. And it's so important that we do ensure that our name is there. It's so important that if you feel like your love is growing cold, if you feel like you know, you've lost your first love, if you feel like you don't even love Jesus, then start to ask God to do something in your heart. You know, make, make concerted efforts to change that. Revelation 5. We managed to get through Revelation 4 in a few weeks. That's why I believe in miracles. Um, Revelation chapter 5, and it says, when everyone's there, everyone know where the book of Revelation is? Uh, no, no idea. <laughs> Right. Chapter 5, and it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. 
and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just pray right now that your spirit will be here with us, Lord, and that you will help us to understand these words of truth that have been given here. Let's have a quick look at a breakdown of that. Before I go into it, it's good for us to sort of be able to visualise the whole book in just a few uh, verses like this. The verse one is the scroll is revealed and it's sealed with seven seals. Uh, verse two is that there's a mighty angel proclaiming who is worthy. Verse three tells us that no one could open the seals. Verse four, John wept because all were unworthy. And verse five, the line of the tribe of Judah is worthy. And then we have verse 6, the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, and he's standing there as if slain. And verse 7 is the lamb takes the scroll. Verse 8 talks about the four living creatures and 24 elders and the bowls of prayers. And then that they, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, sang a new song. And then we have a great assembly of angels appear, or he sees them, and the angels sing. A song and then all creation sings a song and verse 14 says the living creatures and elders fall down and worship the Lord okay so it's pretty just cap captures the whole chapter in just a few screens <clears throat> you know if something's sealed with one seal it's usually pretty official when it's seven it's highly official you know there's not many uh, scrolls that get sealed I did hear that um, certain deeds in Rome used to have seven seals um, as if they were like uh, for property and, and so on as if to really you know make it very very secure and that's really what the essence of seven seals is one seal will make it secure seven will make it extremely secure because if you go to the scroll and all those seals are broken you know someone's been tampering with it don't you and then it's you know it's probably I don't know what happened it's void yeah and they got to start again but we have a seven sealed scroll now, typically scrolls were one-sided. We have, um, you know, papyrus scrolls and parchment scrolls, and they were one-sided, weren't they? They were writing on one side. They usually wouldn't write on the other side, but we get told that this is writing on both sides. And uh, now, this is another thing. The scroll is where? Where is the scroll being kept? In heaven. The scroll is in heaven. The scroll is not on earth. Down here we make it with papyrus and parchments, and I hear, I'm reading things where people are talking about, um, different uh, commentators are talking about how it's probably made of papyrus or parchment, because that was what was getting made of in the day. We're in heaven. It's probably a material that we've never even heard of, you know. And so I think that, that debate's quite, um, you know, in a sense useless, isn't it, really, to be arguing about who's 
what it's made of. But the, the thing that is very key here is it's two-sided. And we'll talk about that very soon. The seals. A seal in biblical times as today is used to guarantee security or indicate ownership. Ancient seals were often made of wax embedded with the personalised imprint of their guarantor, the one that did the stamping. An unbroken seal would prove the document had, been, had not been read by anyone. Having seven seals would mean that God was serious about sealing up this particular scroll. Revelation 5.1, it says, and this is the Amplified, it says, I saw lying on the open hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. So the scroll is lying on the open hand of God, and it's God the Father. How, how come we know it's God the Father? Sorry? He's on the throne. But Jesus also shares the throne with God the Father. Um, the, the reason we know it's God the Father is because he asks who's worthy and then we get told Jesus. that, yeah, Jesus is worthy. And he hands the scroll to mm. Jesus. So that's God the Father on the throne. Mm. And it's closed with and sealed with seven seals. We know that the scroll is in the open hand of God the Father. So if you can imagine that, there's the scroll. The only problem they did there is they didn't put seven seals on that scroll. <laughs> Just imagine seven yeah. seals. But what is the scroll? And this is a much debate. There's a, a big debate about it. What is the scroll? Many ideas have been offered. Some say it's the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. And some people are really convinced it's the Old Testament. Some say it's the whole Bible. The whole of this is the scroll that's in the hand of God that Jesus could open. Some say it's the Apocalypse, so the book of Revelation that we have now. That it was that whole book. And when Jesus opened it, it's the book of Revelation that he gave to John. And there's some merit in that, isn't there? If you think about it, it could have been that. It is part of the apocalypse, maybe from where the seven seals onwards. So the scroll. And the reason why we ask that is because, you know, it's something extremely significant in heaven. Because only one person could open that scroll. And so how important is that scroll? It's really, really important. So a lot of commentators talk about what is the scroll? Uh, some say it is the scroll in Daniel 12, which is sealed up until the time of the end. Um, I'll, I'll tell you in a second why I don't, I don't think it's quite a few of these. It's, it is the book of God's purposes and providence, the purposes of God, the things that God intends to do. Uh, it is the book containing the sentence of judgment on the foes of the faith. So it's like a condemnational sort of document, which is very similar to the one Ezekiel was handed. It is, and a lot of people believe this, it is the title deed of man's inheritance. So it was given to uh, John, uh, to Jesus, sorry, the title deed of man's inheritance, everything that man can receive. Why would you not think it is the Old Testament? Or the whole Bible? Sorry? We have it. We can open it. There's no, we don't have to break seals to open this thing. We don't have to be found worthy to open the Bible. Because, you know, all men are unworthy. So it can't be the Old Testament, I believe. Mm. It just doesn't fit with that. Because the Old Testament was around before this. Uh, it can't be the whole Bible. Even the Apocalypse. And the reason why I don't, I don't believe it's the Apocalypse itself is because I don't believe those seven seals have been broken yet. It was a future breaking of the seals. And I'll give you my reasons for that in just a second. 
um, can't be a part of the apocalypse if that's true as well, because if the seven seals haven't been broken. Um, the scroll in Daniel 12, that was the book of Daniel, and these words were sealed up, and they were sealed up through ability to understand. So no one could understand the book of Daniel, even though the words were laid bare before us. We could read them, but we didn't understand them. And it would be sealed up until a time at the end when they will make sense, and which is what's happening now. Don't we see that people understand the book of Daniel a lot better now? And, and so on. So there's a, and if you look, the title deed of man's inheritance, it could be. The book containing a sense of judgment of foes of faith, it could be, because that's the one that Ezekiel saw. And however Ezekiel saw it, he didn't have to be found worthy to see that scroll. So that's why I don't think it's that one as well. Does this all make sense? I'm not, not going too fast. When I looked up, behold, a hand was stretched out to me. So a very similar sort of scenario. A hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. So it had front and back writing. Must be how they do scrolls in heaven. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woes. And uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, did they write a lot of woes and lamentations and, and, and so on? So for the reason that it's, I don't think it can be Ezekiel's scroll, because again, Ezekiel saw it. He wasn't worthy, had to, didn't have to be found worthy to open it. So what is the scroll? We know this from Scripture. Just the breaking of the seals alone. Who's read the book of Revelation? Put, put your hand up if you've read the book of Revelation. So you're all fairly familiar with it. Just the breaking of the seals alone brings woes to the planet. Just the breaking of the seals. Didn't have to read anything. Just snap and then a woe occurs. A snap and another one. Snap and another one. The woes that occur are not necessarily what is written in the scroll. It's just the breaking. With the breaking of the seventh seal, the seventh, seven trumpet judgments of God begin. And at the seventh trumpet, we see the kingdom of the world becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So at the breaking, at the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So it's handed to him, it's given to him. When the seventh trumpet is blown, they're the words that get declared. And there's a lot more words that are, are based around that as well. So that's with the breaking uh, of the seventh seal, the seven trumpets, and, and that's what occurs. So we've not heard anything that's written in the scroll in all of those passages. You read through there, it doesn't say this is written in the scroll. Because only Jesus can look in the scroll. And this is another thing. It was a future event. And so... I'll talk about it. I believe that even now, this scroll has not been opened. And it is still sealed. Those seals, he saw prophetically being opened in heaven, but no one got to look in the, in the scroll. Those seals are still yet to be broken. And you know how I know that? Because we haven't had the tribulation. We haven't had the great tribulation. The seven seals haven't been broken. So there's not... There haven't been any you know, things happening on the earth that even come close to comparing to what is written in the book of Revelation about when the seven seals are broken. So when Jesus hasn't even looked in that scroll yet, but he's God, so he more than likely knows what's in it. It's not like a big surprise. Because you know when you, you get given a deed, you pretty well, when you get it and it's sealed, you know what's in it. 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just going to break the seal and have a look. Oh, there, great, it's in writing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Jesus knows what's in it. It's that he hasn't broken the seal, so no one else can know. So it's all speculation. It's all speculation. Now, this is the thing. It happens at the end, doesn't it? He breaks seals, and this is going to... Uh, it starts the tribulation. It gets the great tribulation rolling, and then we uh, uh, have all the, the woes that occur after that point, and then the end of the world, and what happens then? The kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and our God. And so from that moment, we have... Every, anyone who can be saved must be saved already. So we know who's saved and who isn't saved at that point, don't we? So I believe that the scroll which no one could open except Christ could be the book of life with the names of all the redeemed from the beginning of time to then. Yeah. I think it just makes sense because books are opened and the book of life comes out and no one can see into the book of life yet. It may be it's a sealed document. And it's all his inheritance. It's the inheritance of not man's inheritance, as which as some people believe. It's God's inheritance. Who loves me? Who's turned to me? Who's followed me? Their names are in the book of life. And this is it. This is what I believe. Now, I could be wrong. You know. And if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. But I think that makes you know, a little bit more sense. But it's still, again, I could be uh, proved wrong with some other interpretation. But again, it's just an interpretation. So you have to make your own judgment on that and, and, and do your own research. But how important is the Book of Life? Who wants their name written in the Book of Life? Yeah. You don't want to get, you don't want to die and find out your name's not in the Book of Life. You know, you don't want to go through life not knowing if your name's in the book of life. You know, you can know your name's there, can't you? Yes. You'll know. Because you're following Christ with all your heart. You love him with all your heart. You don't get bored when people talk about Jesus. You actually get impassioned. Mm -hmm. You know, because Jesus becomes your all. And if Jesus is not your all, your name couldn't might not be in the book of life. If Jesus if you don't care for Jesus, you don't if you don't love him, if you could take him or leave him, if you could if you'd rather sit at home and watch a, a crazy worldly movie than listen to someone talk about Jesus Christ and give him glory, then you've got to start to question things. Amen? You know, we've got to know we're there. Because it's, it's, it's useless to have called yourself a Christian your whole life and get before God and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And he'll just say, I never knew you. You never did the will of God. You never knew me. You never loved me. You never followed me. You didn't want anything to do with me. You sat in church and yawned. Found it boring when people talked about Jesus. But you know what? He is the most important thing in your life. There's nothing more important than Jesus Christ. Nothing. And it's not until you, you enter into that time when you're slipping into death that at that moment, Jesus will mean everything. And I've, how many times have I said this in the past? But the name, you want your name in the book of life. And it's so important that we do ensure that our name is there. It's so important that if you feel like your love is growing cold, 
If you feel like you know, you've lost your first love, if you feel like you don't even love Jesus, then start to ask God to do something in your heart. You know, make, make concerted efforts to change that. You know, I started to feel my prayer life was slipping a bit. So I said, okay, from now on I'm going to wake up in the morning, I'm going to go on a, a, an hour walk. And I'll be getting back just in time for when, you know, Vina gets ready for work. And I did, I was doing my hour walk until the holidays hit, but I'm still getting up and praying. I'm just not doing the same routine. But the thing is, is I made a concerted effort to change something in my life that would get me back on track. Because I know if I did this walk, it would be the, by the time I got back, I've done an hour. And I spent time with my God. And if you don't make efforts to change, you don't change. You know what I mean? It's, there's a, a point where Jesus, you know, Jesus says, if you reach for me, if, you know, we have to reach to him. We have to reach out to him to get change in our life. And then if he sees you reaching, he'll reach. Sort of like that Michelangelo depiction, isn't it? But it's, it is true. We have to reach to Jesus Christ. But we don't want to be a hand that looks like Flopsy. You know, like the Michelangelo one. It's like Flopsy. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm sort of reaching. No, we've got to reach. We've got to cling. We've got to jump towards him and, you know, with everything in our being. You know, it's a short life. It's only this long, really. We're like a blade of grass. We're here one day. We're gone the next. You know? As, you know, kids, kids today, and I'm not saying this against any kids in these rooms, but pretty well in general, and, and it's not just kids, it's kids right up to the age of about 40 or 50 are obsessed with appearance, aren't they? Obsessed with how they look and how they're dressed and, and all this sort of stuff. They don't realise that that's going to disappear. And then once that disappears, it's not long until you start thinking about maybe I'm not going to be here that much longer. Mm. And life comes to an end. We come to an end of our life. Mm. We've got to know Jesus. Looks are not more important than Jesus. Jesus should be put first and foremost. Amen. 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 Who is worthy? Who among us is worthy? Mighty angel proclaiming who is worthy. Revelation 5, 2 to 3, and it says, And I saw a strong angel announcing in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And who is entitled and deserves and is morally fit to break its seals? I like that, morally fit. Who feels morally fit? Do you feel a bit morally sluggish? Morally fit. To break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth in the realm of the dead which is Hades, was able to open the scroll or to take a single look at its contents. None. No one. There is no one morally fit among all creation. And you know that includes angelic realm? That includes the angelic realm because no angel in heaven could open the scroll for different reasons than morals. Because I believe the angels in heaven because they live in such close proximity with God, they don't struggle with morals anywhere near like we do. I think they just there's a, a different reason which I'll explain in just a second. Who can open the seals? When that question was asked, the souls of all men throughout all time were considered by God, but sin was found in all. 
every soul. God surveyed all the history. He went through all the most godly men you can imagine. The most godly men. He went past Abraham and Moses and Noah and, you know, and, and right through all the patriarchs. And then he went through the apostles. And then he went through all of the great men of God throughout the last 2,000 years. The wonderful men of God and all the great exploits they did. And not one, not one was worthy in their own right. That's devastating. That's the truth. You can see why John cried about this. Yes. <laughs> You know, because the impact of that hit him really hard. Like, whoa, no one out of all of them, all of men, all of the great men and women too, wonderful women of God throughout all history. I'm going to say men, it's a generic term. I mean men and women. Let's, yeah. let's not get this gender thing all mixed yeah. up. Um, do you know what I'm saying? And then God considers the angelic realm and their great strength, their beauty and their majesty. But not one were found worthy. Not even the four living creatures who were constantly praising and worshipping God. Not one of them was found worthy. Not one of them went to earth and died on the cross for the sins of men. They were probably morally fit. But they hadn't done the most ultimate of all sacrifices. And that, that is the most beautiful beautiful news of all time is we know we have one and he's the greatest the highest the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings for none had given their life for mankind John wept because all were unworthy Revelation 5 4 says and I wept audibly and bitterly because there was no one was found fit to open the scroll or to inspect it no one and you can understand what a dilemma in heaven because actually if you think about it when he was in heaven and he heard that, he says, who's found worthy to open this scroll and take a look inside? And all he knew at that moment was there was probably, I don't know how long that went, but all of mankind and all of the angels and not one was found worthy and he just broke down. This is terrible. This is terrible. Because his mind wasn't thinking to Jesus Christ. You know, he was just thinking of the dilemma in front of him and it broke him. At that point in the vision, John felt the deep sorrow of not only his own unworthiness, because that would have been the thing. Would you, would you be thinking about your own unworthiness? Why can't I open the scroll? And then all of your sins, all of your life sins. You know what? If all of the sins that you've committed flash before your eyes in the next minute, it would probably just about kill you. Kill you from sorrow, heartbreak, disgust. You know, if all my sins were put up on this projector here and you could see them, I'd run out of this place screaming. And you'd all be sitting there going, oh, really? I've never done that before. But it's terrible. Our lives are terrible. I'm, I'm actually panicking about Judgment Day. I know I'm safe, but please don't project it in front of your all creation. <laughs> Just keep it between you and me, God. I can handle just God knowing. Because the criticism that will come is just, I'm sure we won't get criticised in heaven. But at that point in the vision, John felt the deep sorrow of not only his own unworthiness, but the added burden of a creation, both angelic and human, who are unworthy. 
But then we have this lion of the tribe of Judah, and he has conquered. Amen? Yes. I find this fascinating. The lion, Revelation 5, 5, Then one of the elders of the heavenly Sanhedrin said to me, Stop weeping. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, the source of David, has won, has overcome and conquered. He can open the scroll and break its seals. He can do it. And you can imagine the jubilation. You know, he, you know, the angel declaring this, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And you just can't wait to see this lion of the tribe of Judah. Where is he? Where is he? Show us the lion. Isaiah 11. Let's have a look. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. You have to turn there. It was too long for me to write it out. And it says, the, one of the orders of the heavenly Sanhedrin said to me, Stop weeping, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root and source of David. The root of David. What was David's father's name? King David. Jesse. So I say 11, and it said, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Notice branch in my Bible is capital B. Yep. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is the seven spirits of the Lord. Some people see it as that. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So the Spirit of the Lord is one. The Spirit of wisdom, of the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the fear. Who delights in the fear of the Lord? We should. We should. The fear of the Lord will keep us from sin. Very powerful, the fear of the Lord. We should have a reverent fear of our God at all times, knowing that He holds us in the palm of His hand. And we should respect and honour Him that He has chosen to keep us in His palm. And we should fear and honour Him out of love. And I've used an example of that. I had an experience with that as a child. I grew up with a father who was a loving father who I could come up to and kiss and hug at, at night before bed. And But I feared Him. Because I feared his wrath. But it didn't stop me coming and sitting on his knee at night. But I respected him. I had a reverent respect for him because when his wrath would flare up, I was in big trouble. And, you know, as a kid, I sort of saw it a bit. Because I was a, you know, a bit of a brat. If you ask my parents, they'll tell you. It's a bit of a brat. Hey, Judy. Yeah. <laughs> Judy, very much like us, a bit of a brat. We were all brats, most of us. And, but so I saw my father's wrath quite a few times. But it never stopped me loving him. It never stopped me wanting to you know, come close to him. So that's the sort of... He's a father. That's why he called it a, like a good father. That's how it should be. Reverence and fear, but love and respect and honour. So the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Go down to uh, verse 2 and it says, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge... By what he sees with his eyes. How's that? He will decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. I mean, it says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears. He won't just hear witnesses. He doesn't have to hear a witness. He doesn't have to hear someone come up and stand there to defend someone else or, or condemn someone. He knows what's happened. He knows everything. 
He's omnipresent. He's seen every individual circumstance respecting the conduct of mankind in all time. Every individual circumstance. I used to think about that, and I actually got that quote from a, a book called The Book of Enoch. Um, we won't go into that. I'm not going to preach from The Book of Enoch. But um, there's a, a, a quote where um, Enoch in this book is shown every individual circumstance respecting the conduct of mankind in all time, and he fell down as if dead. He saw it all. He saw all of the terrible, terrible things that had occurred. However long that took and however that was capable, how he downloaded that into his consciousness and, and he saw it all, it was just too much to bear. And Jesus Christ died for every last bit of that and that was only up to that time as well. So Jesus Christ died for all the sins, every single terrible thing that's been done and not so terrible because there's sins that have different weight, don't they? Different gravity in sin. Some sins, you know, go ahead of you to judgment. Bible says. Others trail behind. Who's heard that in the, in the scriptures? Some sins go ahead of us to judgment. Like murder, you know, terrible things, atrocities, um, dictators and stuff that do terrible things to their people. They all judgments that go ahead of you. And then there's other sins that you do, like little white lies. They trail behind us, but they're still sin. We've still got to be on them. Do you know what I mean? But he will judge, not by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's a different way of looking, a rod of his mouth. Mm. Right? We know that he has a sword that comes out of his mouth. But here we're told there's a rod. He will strike it. Uh, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. It says that he will breathe and his enemies will be destroyed. This is no mere man. Jesus Christ is no mere man. Jesus Christ is God. He'll slay his enemies with the breath of his mouth. Wow. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. And Now, now we're getting a picture of the millennium. This is where Jesus and those who love Jesus will live with him in, in the millennium and will never leave his temple, will stay with him. Amen? Amen. I, I, all I can say is when the millennium comes, don't take off the Gog and Magog. Hang around the temple. Hang around with Jesus. Stay with Jesus. Don't depart. And hang there for a thousand years. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? I believe so. I believe all those that don't come and bow down to Jesus Christ on a daily basis and live in His presence and stay with Him and are consumed with His beauty and love and just love Him and adore Him and stay continually in His presence, if they take off and get into their own thing and they head off and they, they lose touch with Jesus Christ, they can become one of the multitudes that at the end of a thousand years get deceived by Satan when Satan is released from the abyss for a short time and those multitudes will come and attack the city of God and then they'll be destroyed by fire like Sodom and Gomorrah. So all I'm saying is, and I'm saying this in advance, but we don't know how long it's going to be. You know, 
just say the Great Tribulation begins very soon, and there's only just a few years, and then Jesus returns, and then we're in it. You know, so it could be anywhere from, you know, 7 to 14 years away, depending. Could be could be longer, of course, but it could it could be seven years away. Just say the tribulation, the, the seven year tribulation period begins tomorrow. We don't know. It'll come like a thief. Jesus says it'll come like a thief. It'll happen like that. It'll just suddenly happen, and, and all the things, all the prophecies that have to be in place will just align and bang on meet, and it'll start, and it'll take most people unawares. It'll just be a shock. Actually, most people would be denying that it's even occurring. And then once it occurs, guess what? A huge portion of people will start looking for the Messiah. And then they'll fall for the wrong Messiah. Yeah, it says that many will be led astray by an antichrist. And they'll worship him. And he'll proclaim himself to be God. You know, Hitler. Hitler had Germany living in the thousand-year millennium of peace. They believe they're in the millennium. So that's how deceived. There's a whole country of people believing they're in the millennium talked about in, and that uh, Hitler himself was Christ. That's how far it went. So, scary days. So just remember, the millennium's coming, and it could be not that far away. And this is what will happen in the millennium. It says, the wolf will lie, uh, live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the copra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water waters covers cover the sea. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ is here ruling and reigning. It's no longer we have to evangelize. We don't have to tell people, you know, you know Jesus is king. No, just know he's king. He is king. <laughs> he's ruling. He's reigning. He's here. But it's a thousand years. It's still. We're in the new covenant. I'm not sure how it's going to operate then. I'm not sure of the whole process and whether there's going to be a whole new section called a newer covenant. <laughs> Something there. Because at the end of that thousand years, we have the great white throne judgment. At the end of that thousand years, many are judged and destroyed. So that's why I'm saying, stay close to Jesus. That's why I'm saying now, in this day, stay close to Jesus. Don't give up meeting together as some of them in the habit of doing, as the Bible says. Come, meet, stay, go through the hard times. And then we just get built up in the faith and we stay passionate for Jesus Christ. Amen. We stay close to Jesus. Amen. And then it says, in that day, this is uh, verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. His place of rest. We use that for people that go and die, but that's not what he's talking about here. His place of rest is a thousand years of rest. And peace, no wars, you know, no hardships, no pain, no suffering. The leaves of the trees of life will be used for the healing of the nations. Everyone will be healed. No cancers. No one 
you know, suffering needlessly. Let's look at Hebrews 7, 14. When you start reading the book of Revelation, you get a very different picture of the future, don't you? You know, Because if you're not schooled in the book of Revelation, you think Jesus returns, we all go to heaven and sit on clouds playing you know, harps. But it's actually not like that. Most people have got a very you know, uh, inept understanding of what happens. When Jesus returns, he's coming back to rule and to reign and live on earth, be here for a thousand years. And we're still going to have to worship and live for him and turn to him and still, still we could be struggling with the sin nature at a different level because we're in the presence of God, but we still could be. I'm not necessarily sure that in that millennium the sin will be taken away because if sin was taken away, we wouldn't have a rebellion at the end of that thousand years, would we? But it does say that those who have died for Jesus or lived and died for Jesus on earth prior to that time will not experience what? Second death. You know, when I read that, it makes me want to die for Jesus Christ before he comes. I don't want to risk it. I want to know that my future's guaranteed. I'm in. Second death has no hold on me because I've died for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 7, 14. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to the tribe, to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Judah had no priests. There was no priests to come out of Judah. They had a kingly line, but they didn't have a line of priests. And I love what the writer of Hebrews says here. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears... So if someone like Melchizedek appears, and if you read about Melchizedek, my personal opinion is Melchizedek was Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. From all my research, I can do a, I should do a sermon called, you know, Who is Melchizedek? But I believe he's Jesus Christ because there's some very clear words that lead you to think that. And that was before he came in the flesh and died for the sins of men. But he could appear before men and be seen visibly. He was able to reveal himself. So, And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, and remember Melchizedek was such a priest that Abraham gave him a tenth of all he uh, got from the spoils of this great battle. One who has become a priest, and listen to these words, not on the basis of a regulation, as to his ancestry. So he didn't become a priest because his dad was a priest and because he was a Levite. He didn't become a priest because he was part of that genealogy. But on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Indestructible, what does that mean? Everlasting. Can't destroy him. Cannot get rid of him. He's here forever. On the basis of that, that Jesus Christ is your only only man to have a, a life, an indestructible life, he is considered a priest. And apart from the fact that he rose from the dead, and which is probably in, uh, potentially what that is saying, the fact that he died on the cross for the sins of men. And he did what no other priest before him could ever do. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. 
The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. Catch that. The law makes nothing perfect. When you, when you sin according to the law, and you, you, you've just, you know, you get told, don't go beyond 60 kilometers an hour, and you hit 70 and you get a speeding ticket. Actually, these days you hit 65 and you get a speeding ticket. Right? Does the law make you perfect? It, it, it makes you poorer. Yeah. But it, it, does, it doesn't make you perfect. You can get told not to do something, but you still do it. Right? So that's the law. It's telling you, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then when you do it, you know you've done wrong because the law tells you you've done wrong. But it makes nothing perfect. So the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. A better hope. And that better hope is who? Jesus Christ. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Isn't that wonderful? Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The old covenant, covenant is no longer active. The new covenant, it's a better covenant. It's a wonderful covenant. You know, if we're still under the old covenant, I'd be probably sacrificing, you know, lambs and bulls and pigeons and you name it. Yeah, we'd have to do all that. It would be a very different service, wouldn't it? Mm. It would smell like a barbecue. It would smell all right, but I don't know if we were allowed to eat the meat. But um, it wouldn't be good. And you know what? How poor would we be? You know, I'd be coming every week with a, with a young lamb. Here, have another one. I've just sinned again. And throw a few pigeons in. <laughs> You know, because who can't, you know, it's impossible nearly sometimes. It's not impossible. I'll, I'll change that wording because it is possible to live in the spirit. Amen. This is what we're talking about uh, in the prayer meeting today. We we're praying about living in the spirit and living uh, filled with prayer, like having a life of prayer. If you live and you're speaking to God all day long, you can live a sinless life. But the challenge is doing that is living that close to God, living that close in connection with Jesus Christ. Because if, if, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. I don't think there's been a man on the face of the earth who hasn't, had, who hasn't been challenged by that. Living close to God and living a perfect life. Who has better days than others? Who has some days where you could go to bed and say, you know, I reckon I did it today. You know, it's a nice feeling, isn't it? Where you go to bed, think, then you wake up the next morning and you stuff it right up you know, straight away. But, you know, we should be aiming to live in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. 7.14 to 28. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now, there were many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office. See, they died and that was it. That was the end of their priesthood. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because he's got a permanent priesthood. That's the job of a priest, the intercession for everyone. People try to understand what Jesus is interceding. Yes, he is. He's interceding because that's his job. He's a priest. 
He's interceding. He's praying for Blessed Hope Chapel right now. He's praying for every single person here. He's praying for all of your hearts to be warmed. All of your hearts to grow stronger in faith. Because he ever lives to intercede for us. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Day after day, imagine that. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son has been made perfect forever. How many eyes does he have there? Seven eyes and seven horns. That's a depiction. Slain lamb with seven eyes, seven horns and seven eyes. Revelation 5, 6. And there between the throne. Now remember, he just got told. We have to back, back up a little bit. We just got told that, that don't worry, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And John would have been looking around. Where's the lion? Where's the lion? And then he looked upon the throne of God. And it says this, and there between the throne and the four living creatures and, and among the elders of the heavenly Sanhedrin, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold Holy Spirit, who have been sent on duty far and wide into all the earth. And, and again, we've talked about the sevenfold Holy Spirit, or we talked about the seven spirits of God that have been sent into all the earth. The slain lamb standing. The wound marks are there. <coughs> this is a, from Eliot. Uh, it's a commentary that you can get on the Bible. The wound marks are there, but it is not dead. It is standing, for it represents him who, though he died, is alive forevermore. But the signs of suffering and death are visible. For it is not the lamb, but the suffering lamb, which is exalted. It is not Christ, but the Christ crucified, which is the power of God. For Christ lifted up from the earth draws all men unto him. And we'll just finish by reading John 12:32. So the standing lamb means he's alive forevermore. The wound marks he still carries, but he's standing. He he went he thought he was going to see a lion, but he sees a lamb. He thought he was going to see a powerful being, but he sees a meek, humble being. In a lamb. Has anyone ever patted a lamb? Yeah. Are they beautiful creatures? Yes. Aren't they? You know, if you ever go to the zoo, go into the, uh, the kitty zoo, the kitty zoo, and pat the lambs. They're beautiful. We had, we had, uh, when I was a kid, we had twelve black sheep. My brother and I. We saved a bit of money and we bought twelve black sheep as an investment because we lived on a farm, twenty-six acres. And we had these 12 stupid black sheep. And uh, everything that could go wrong with farming went wrong to us. You know, one day we came home and there was no 12 black sheep. Where are the black sheep? And then we get a call from some farmer like miles away saying, we've got your sheep. Because everyone knew we had 12 black sheep and they knew his sheep were. And they got out and they found a hole and one went through and then all the others followed and they all went out. And... Uh, Anyway, we had to rally them up and get them back. We got them back. 
It's funny, you just get one to go and they all follow that one. You know, they're followers. Sheep hang together, they go together. You know, one says this way, and, all right, let's go. And, uh, but these sheep, they got fly blown. You know what fly blown is? Yes. On their backsides, oh, it's a terrible thing. You have to sort of shave it and put some stuff on it and they run around like they got their pants on fire. And then they had all these lambs and they were beautiful. And we think we just doubled our money, you know, that's how we were thinking. We had all these beautiful lambs. But then every day we come out and a lamb was missing. And they would find the lamb torn up somewhere. And it wasn't a fox. We found out who it was. My dad got up and found it. And it was one of our dogs. We had this stray dog, which we called Scruffy. And he, he was going to kill him. So at the end, we just had 12 black sheep. And then we had to round the sheep up to sell them. And we had to round them and put them on a trailer. And that was the craziest thing you've ever seen in your life because we are just not farmers. And we had this dam, this terrible, smelly, dirty old dam. And there's this walking trail around the, the dam about this big and there's a fence right there, a barbed wire fence. So you're sort of trying to not get pricked by the barbed wire and walking around. And the sheep, you know, you would come and we were saying, come on, onto the trailer. And not one of them wanted to get on and they all took off around the dam. And so there's my mum. And you know what my mum's like. And she's walking around the edge of the dam, slipping into the dam, because it's all muddy, and chasing these sheep. And then the sheep were coming, like they were running, and they'd see my dad, and they detour from my dad, and they see my brother who was bigger than me, so they detour from me, and they see me, the smallest, and they go straight over the top of me. <laughs> and I'm like getting trampled. Anyway, I don't know how we did it, but we ended up getting them on and selling them. But uh, I don't know why I started telling you the story. It had no bearing on anything, but that was the stupid black sheep. <laughs> So we got out of the farming business after that. John 12, 32. Yeah, but we had experiences with lambs. They are so gorgeous. When they were born, they're the most beautiful little things you've ever seen. They're so cute, cuddly. You know, you see pictures of Jesus holding a lamb. You know, if you've seen that picture on the internet. And, and uh, yeah, they, they're like that. They're like little humans. Real calm, placid. They just, you know, hang in your arms. And that's, Jesus depicts himself as that. Yeah. Not a sheep, not a stupid black sheep. No. He depicts himself as a gentle, as a lamb. And no kidding, you don't get much more gentle than a lamb. But you don't get much more ferocious than a lion. You know, so wonderful medium. You just want to know you're on the lamb side of Jesus. Amen. Because he's also a liar. John 12, 32. But I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself when he's lifted up. You know that's a promise that we've got to stand on as Christians? That Jesus will draw all men to himself. That when he's lifted up. Now, it's, it's saying it. there's two ways you can look at that. It's when Jesus is lifted up from the earth. It could be when he's lifted up on the cross. There's probably a few ways. He's lifted up that every man who looks to him will receive forgiveness. Who remembers the story of the, um, in the, when Moses was in the desert and they were all getting bitten by snakes? Who knows this story? They were all bit and they were dying. And he put a, a snake on a pole and, he, and he, anyone who looked at that, just looked at it, wouldn't die from the venom of the snake. 
And he said, just like the snake was lifted up in the desert, so I'll be lifted up. He's not saying, I'm a snake. That's not how some, because some people go and, have you seen those churches where they start, they bring snakes in? Oh, yes. They'll handle snakes. It's yes. not that. That's not the, what he's saying is, the poison of sin will not hurt you. The poison of the viper will not hurt you. When I am lifted up on that, and you look to me, you will be saved. So when he, and you can also see it as when he's lifted up off the earth and he's gone to heaven, he'll send the Holy Spirit who will draw all men unto himself. Or you can look at it as this. When he is lifted up in a worship service, when he's lifted up in a congregation, when we praise him and honour him and lift him up, he'll draw men to himself. Amen. 1 Corinthians 1, 23, 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. And it is to many foolishness. And a stumbling block to the Jewish people still to this day. But we don't stop preaching him. Amen. We are told that the lion of the tribe of Judah was, has triumphed. And of course we expect to see a lion. But as John looks, he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Power manifesting itself in sin and weakness. Yeah, Isaiah 53, 7. And this is my last two scriptures. I said it before, but I mistakenly thought it was these. Isaiah 53, 7. Who knows that when Jews read the book of Isaiah, they skip over this chapter. Did you know that? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, I knew you knew that. Um, they skip over the end of 52. There was a man who went around his office and he read a portion of this. And he said, where is that from? And people would say, oh, that's from the Bible. He said, yeah, but in the Bible, was it, where's it from in the Bible? And they say, oh, it's from the New Testament. They go, no, this is the Old Testament. This was written a thousand years before Christ came. And let's, let's just read a bit of it. We'll go back to verse 1. It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. What they're saying is, Jesus wasn't the most, you know, greatest looking guy on the block. <laughs> Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. It's talking about a lamb. Isaiah talking about Jesus as a lamb. By oppression and judgment. How did he know that? 
How did he know that? That one day Jesus was going to appear as a lamb on the throne, standing as if slain. He knew that because the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit revealed it. This book is so connected. Every single book in the Bible is connected to each other. There's a, it's, it's finely woven together. It's like a fabric, isn't it? One thing backs up another thing. You can't go anywhere in the Bible without cross-referencing somewhere else where it's connected. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. How did he know this? Of course we know it's the Holy Spirit. But I find this remarkable. This here, to me, is more a, a more clear reference to the death of Jesus and what happened, and the depth of what happened, the wisdom of what happened, than anything in the Gospels. It's so clear. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. What's that saying? A rich man gave him his, his grave. He knew that. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And they said, you know, a pilot said, I find this man innocent. He was a man, no sin. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his souls, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. When you go to God and you ask, ask for repent, uh, repent before him, if you ask for forgiveness for your sin, he will immediately intercede for you and he will give you forgiveness. He will forgive you. And that's the promise we have. But isn't this amazing? I say, I don't know how many hundreds of years before Jesus, long time, I reckon at least it's way before, more than 400 because Malachi was written 400 years before. So it was, must be 800 or that? 700. Yeah. So that's pretty astounding, isn't it? That's evidence that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that's why the Jews... Don't read it. Don't read it. Just go past it. This is... We don't want too much trouble, you know, in the synagogue. We don't want people getting upset, getting their nose out of joint. So we'll just skip this passage, go over here. And it's easier, isn't it? But is it blind? You know? One day they will read it. Because we know Israel will turn to Jesus before he comes. They will, they will read it. Last scripture, John 1.29, just one passage. So let's turn there. And, and this is all about the lion and the lamb, and we're told that he's a lamb, um, standing as if slain. The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? That same depiction that he's a lamb. He's a lamb, a gentle, calm lamb. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just thank you for this time now. And I just pray that the words that I spoke today 
will bear fruit in everyone's life and I pray that everyone was blessed immensely by what we spoke about. Thank you for uh, just guiding us through these scriptures and I just pray for more and more insight as we keep reading into the book of Revelation, especially now we're starting, we're coming towards the breaking of the first seal and uh, we're going to start looking at um, world events and a whole range of things in light of um, these seals being broken and, and so on. And we're going to be cross-referencing with so many Old Testament scriptures which um, speak to the similar things. And Lord, we just pray uh, that you give us great insight to the, as we go into these things, that we'll be blessed as we read them. But Lord, uh, I just thank you for everyone here. And I just pray for a move of the Spirit in everyone's heart and life right now. I just pray that your Spirit just draw close to us, come close to us and help us and lift us up. Lord, if any of us are feeling a bit down or de-energized or whatever, Lord, I just pray that you lift us up out of it and help us to uh, just uh, get our eyes on you and help us to um, focus our energies into living a holy Christian life uh, in obedience to you. So just be with us now and this week and, and protect us and, and bring us back together safely, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after. And may we have a wonderful fortnight in between, Lord. And I just pray for everyone to be blessed over this fortnight and that their passion and their uh, desire to serve you will not wane in any way. Mm -hmm. Praise the love for that, Jesus. Mm -hmm.